Good to see you all here tonight. Everybody got notes? If you don't, Brother Danny's handing them out. <coughs> You'll notice at the back of your notes, there's a quiz. We're not going to do that in here. Um, but it is something for you to take home. And all it is, is it's the theme of the major prophets. Uh, there's five books there, which is the five major prophets. We're covering the last one tonight. And then there are the themes listed that are in your notes that we went over. And it's a simple matching quiz. I say that because I want to encourage you. All the notes for the major prophets should be right over here. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel is what we covered. Grab them if you haven't uh, had a chance to look at those notes. Match them up because next week when we come in here, uh, we're going to open up with this very quiz that's on the back of your notes. And it's not going to be in the same order. We're going to trust that you know a little bit about that. All right? Um, and so, and if you're new with us here tonight, uh, again, what we do on Wednesday nights is kind of a, a little bit of a, what we call a, um, a grow university, uh, opportunity for us to look um, uh, at growing deeper in the word. Uh, we encourage discussion and questions. Right now, we're going through a, a class that's called Old Testament Survey. We're looking at how every book of the Old Testament is really centralized on Jesus Christ, how Jesus is the main character even of the Old Testament to help and encourage us as we're reading our scriptures um, to read them in, in the theme of one story. The Bible really is one story of Jesus saving his people from their sins. Um, it's, we don't want to detach the Old Testament from that. Sometimes we view the Old Testament as simply old and irrelevant, and it's simply not. It's, it's a part of that grand story. And in each week, we've been going through books of the Bible in the Old Testament most of the time, we've got them in on one week um, and have looked at how they're really all about Jesus. Tonight, we are looking at one of my favorite Elton John songs, uh, Daniel. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it is actually one of my favorite Elton John songs. But Daniel is the last book of the major prophets, um, and so uh, we'll be looking at this. We know a lot about Daniel, right? Uh, we know pretty much a lot of the stories from the book of Daniel, but tonight we're going to look and see a little bit deeper what Daniel is actually about. Daniel is the only book that really spans the entire length of the exile, the entire exile, okay? Uh, Daniel was a teenager when he was taken captive by Babylon during the first wave of exiles in 606 or, uh, BC, and he was still in Babylon, then an old man, when the first Jews returned to Jerusalem in 536 BC. You remember that story in Ezra and Nehemiah when the Jews are returning from exile? Uh, and then you remember, obviously, how Judah in their sin, book of Jeremiah, remember Babylon's taking them over. So Daniel covers the entire exile. He's one of the first wave of uh, those in Judah to be taken out from Babylon, and he stays there until the first wave of exiles return back to Jerusalem. He spent that entire time in the city of Babylon. And so at first... The Babylons were the dominant empire in that region. Can anybody tell me who they were conquered by in 539 B.C.? The Babylonians were conquered by? Medes and the Persians. Absolutely. Great. Um, in 539. Um, and so uh, chapters 1 through 4, 7, and 8 occur during the reign of the Babylonians. Chapter 5 records the fall of the last Babylonian king and the takeover of power by the Medes and the Persians. Chapter 6 and chapter 9 record events that occurred during the reign of the new empire called the Medo-Persian Empire. So what did I just tell you about the chapters? They're not in chronological order. They are not in chronological order. No, I'm sorry that they're not, but they're not. I'm going to comment on why that is in a moment. For now, it's important point that the people of God have been captured in exile by Gentile nations. And they are caught up as little pawns, so it appears, as those Gentile nations struggle for sovereignty and rule on the earth. In fact, even though they are little pawns, they're not ignored, they're persecuted and afflicted by the Gentile nations, and mainly it's because of their monotheistic religion. That really captures what we call the redemptive historical context of the book. Would anybody like to take a stab at what I mean by redemptive historical context? That would be a good question. Talk about this often. Redemptive historical context. How it pertains to the story of redemption through Christ. That's right. So when we talk about the Bible being one book, right? One story. The redemptive historical context of the book says, 
what's the context of where we are in that story? In that story to save sinners. When we talk about historical context, we're asking things like author, date, audience. We're talking about redemptive historical context. We need to know where we are in God's plan to save himself, for himself, a people. Okay? Thank you, Brock. Um, So the question on the table in this redemptive historical context is, who is it that sovereignly rules the earth? The Jews had always thought that Yahweh was the Lord of both heaven and earth, ruling by a truly divine right. We've already looked at a number of theological conundrums that the exile has caused in 2 Kings and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Well, here's another one. God's people, having been dominated by first the Babylonians and now the Medo-Persians, we must ask the question, is Yahweh in control of the world of men? Or are there kings and empires that are stronger than Yahweh? Well, I know that we know the answer to that question is, no, Yahweh is the strongest of all, of course. But it sure looks in the book of Daniel as though the latter is true. And you add to the fact that the people of God are small and inconsequential in the passing of power from one empire to another, and the fact that they're being persecuted all along the way, we ask, where is their God? Well, how will all this turn out, both in the immediate future and when all history is said and done? Equally important, how ought the people of God behave through all of this? Those are the questions that Daniel will answer, and the answer will come basically in this form. Here is the theme that I would maybe pay attention to. Um, The theme is this. The Most High, the God of Daniel, sovereignly rules and reigns supreme over all mankind. Therefore, his people are brave in the face of persecution. You'll notice in that first sentence, by the way, I didn't refer to God by his covenant name, which is... Yahweh, right? He's actually referred to here as the Most High because he is actually referred that way in most of the book of Daniel. Uh, God is referred to as Yahweh only in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel. He's largely called the, the Most High. And the sudden near absence of the covenant name could be for a couple reasons. It could be because the focus of the book is to address who truly rules the earth. Various kings have thought that they are quite high on such a short list. But it is the only true God who is the most high. Furthermore, the people of God have understood that the covenant name Yahweh emphasized that they and only they out of all the nations are in covenant with him. But that phrase, the most high, in places where we expect to see Yahweh, emphasizes that he's God over all the peoples of the earth, not just the Jews. Another reason it could be intended to highlight is because the Jews are in exile, right? Why are they in exile? Disobedience. Yeah, because they haven't been really covenantly faithful to that covenant name of Yahweh, right? Interestingly enough, it's in chapter 9 when the covenant name Yahweh reappears in the text, and it's there that Daniel is talking and praying about the end of the exile. So that's another reason why he's referred to as Most High. It's as though as he's rejoicing in the promises of God that he and his fellow Jews will again be my people in the eyes of God. Uh, Perhaps it's all of that or some kind of combination of all these reasons, but that's why we see God listed as Most High, not but once as Yahweh. Um, Again, it's also very interesting how Daniel structures this book. We have not come to a structure like this in any book so far. Um, But he structures his book to get to the point of God's complete sovereignty all the way across. If you look at your outline, you see your your outline with pivotal text there? You see how it kind of goes in and dips in and it comes out like this, right? You notice that, the indentions there? A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, right? Do you see that? Mm -hmm. This means yes. Yes. This means no. Nothing gives me nothing. (laughs) Um, All right, so... When you see that, um, what you're noticing is that the the first four chapters are actually recapitulated in chapter 5 through 9. There is a mirroring effect. It's what we call um, a chiasm in uh, interpretation. Um, And here's the point is if 
once we get to hermeneutics and we learn some of the rules of interpretation, you're going to see stuff like this, the chiasm, the mirroring effect of all this, everywhere in Scripture. You know how many times I have to avoid talking to you about chiasms on Sunday morning because you look at me with the faces that you're looking at me with right now, you know? Um, so, uh, but they are everywhere in the Scripture, and they're important because they emphasize the main point that gets um, right there in the middle. Um, that's the point. They draw the emphasis to the middle and to the two sections labeled D's here. And there we have the stories of two kings that are being humbled from their place of where they thought they were untouchable and above all, um, and themselves sovereign. Right there in the middle of those two stories, we find chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Somebody go ahead and turn to Daniel 4, 34 through 35. And if you would... Read that for me because this is the major point of the book. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? All right, yeah, that's that right there is what we call the overall theme of the book of Daniel. Mark that down if you write in your Bible, highlight it. If you ever read the book of, the Daniel, of the book of Daniel, you're going to keep that as the main idea of the book. Uh, But there is another major theme of Daniel uh, that we know more familiarly, and that is the theme of persecution and affliction of the people of God. This comes because of all turmoil between nations that they're caught up in, and and it's because of that rock-solid confidence that these nations don't rule history, but the Most High does, that Daniel and his friends can be brave and weather any tribulation that mere man might send their way. All right. Let's go ahead. Um, you see the outline of pivotal text there. You notice they're not chronological, um, as it notes down there. You note the middle of the thematic chiasm. You can use that word at parties, and no one will care. Uh, and you can uh, look at chapters 2 through 7, were originally written in Aramaic as well. Uh, so with all these interesting characteristics about Daniel, there are a number of approaches that we could look at to study the text in our short time. We could just go chapter by chapter. Or we could take the chapters in chronological order. Or we could take the chapters that are meant to reinforce each other and look at those pairs together. That's what we're going to do. Um, that's going to help us, I think, get the structure better. So uh, now we need to decide if we're going to work at the middle and work our way out or work out and the way in. We're going to start at the middle and work our way out with chapters 4 and 5, Okay. Um, In these two chapters, here's what we have. Remember, we have prideful kings who believe that they rule over their large territories by their own might. They believe they are the sovereign of all sovereigns, and we're going to look at one at a time. The first, uh, Brother Dave read his name in chapter 4. He is this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Who's immediately thinking of VeggieTales right now? Don't be, yeah, I know that, yeah. Christian kid raised in a Christian home, I knew it. All right, so um, don't start singing the bunny song. Uh, So in the first part of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a very large tree, many different birds nesting in it, which is then suddenly chopped down. And by this time, Daniel has actually risen far in the Babylonian government because of the wisdom that God had given him, because of the usefulness he has to the king. Sound familiar, by the way? What does that sound like? Joseph. Joseph. Yeah, Daniel is Joseph the sequel. Just going to let you know that. He has also shown himself to be an accurate interpreter of dreams. Of course, if God has given him those interpretations. And then anyway, uh, in chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, Daniel gives the king this interpretation. Somebody read 24 through 26. Uh, that's uh, No, that's not too big. Um, I'll read it anyways. Uh, 24 through 26 of chapter 4. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. 
And inasmuch as they gave command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. All right. In other words, David is saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're way too puffed up. And the Most High is going to have to humble your behind until he admits that he is but an under-sovereign who only had power because the Most High temporarily had given him power. Now, whether or not Nebuchadnezzar believed Daniel at this point or not, the text doesn't say. However, we're tempted to think that he didn't because of what we read in verses 29 and 30. Who wants to read that for me? Go ahead, Bob. Oh, sorry. 29 and 30. Go ahead, Danny. <laughs> okay. All right, come on, Danny. Let's go. <laughs> Twelve months later, there. he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Thank you, buddy. That, that's it, right? Yeah, 29, 30. But um, you can go ahead and read 31. Read 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared. Uh, you got it? Yeah. Sovereignty has been removed from you. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. Amen. So this is so think about this, right? Here, Nebuchadnezzar puffs his chest out. I'll show you, God. Verse 31 happens, and Nebuchadnezzar was struck with some sort of insanity where he just couldn't effectively rule. He didn't recover until he confessed what we read in verses 34 and 35. All right? You remember that? Um, that was the main idea of the text. So that was actually his, I'm sorry, that was, yeah, um, yeah, 34 and 35, what we read at the beginning, okay? Um, as I said, that's the center of the book. Remember, much everything revolves around that theology. And that story ends with Nebuchadnezzar uttering these words in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways, justice, and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. That last sentence leads us into chapter 4's sister chapter, chapter 5. In chapter 5, what happened, you ask? I'm so glad you did. Let me tell you. The Most High delivers the same message to another king. By now, Nebuchadnezzar is dead and Belshazzar is running Babylon. Belshazzar was not the king, but he was the co-regent of the city for his father, Nabonidus, who is currently elsewhere in the empire, as you see there in your footnotes. However, Belshazzar did not learn a single lesson from Nebuchadnezzar's pride and humiliation. Instead, he there himself has a big party. And what does he use to drink in that big party? Anybody know? Vessels. The sacred vessels, right? In the temple. Absolutely. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, he had given a vision. Uh, he's given a vision from the Most High, and this time it's in the form of? Handwriting on the wall. Absolutely. Great, John. Thank you, buddy. Um, putting a real damper on his merrymaking. Uh, the Most High has come and crashed his party. But he doesn't know what the writing means. And so, Daniel is again called in to give an interpretation. And here's what he gives in chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. Bob, why don't you read that one for me, buddy? It's Belshazzar, too, just to okay. give you a help. Uh, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, and the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways you have not glorified. Thank you, buddy. Absolutely. So, brave man that Daniel, isn't he? <laughs> Got some guts to him. All right, here's what the writing actually said. Justin, you can read that one in verses 26 through 28. Yes. <clears throat> this is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. All right, and then 
We read in verses 30 and 31, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. slain. And that's, that's Hebrew. Is, you know, that's not true. <laughs> that's Callahanian for slain. Um, so, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Again, what's the point of all of this? Remember, the point of all of it is that the Most High, he don't entertain any rivals, right? No, we have to learn this constantly. He alone rules the affairs of heaven and earth. We ascribe to our God complete an unchallenged authority and divine sovereignty by which he rules and governs all the affairs of his moral universe. Is that true today? You bet you it's true today. God has not changed. So when his people see kingdoms rising, falling, governing in godless ways, wink, wink, hint, hint, they need not fear that the Lord does not see and is somehow off his throne. Okay? All right. That's actually much of the point of one of uh, St. Augustine's best work, The City of God. If you don't have that, get a modern ex- explanation of The City of God. Re- just uh, read the cliff notes. Um, but it's really good. All right. So now we're working our way out. We started in chapter 4 and chapter 5. We saw how these are comparative sister chapters with the theme of the Most High will not brook any rivals. See ya, Belshazzar. See ya, Nebuchadnezzar. Now we're working our way out. We go to chapter 3 and chapter 6. Okay. Uh, Let's see what that theology of divine sovereignty looks like when it runs up against more arrogant kings and how it affects the lives of the people of God. Okay. Chapter 3 and chapter 6. Chapter 3. Contains the famous story of Daniel's three friends. That is actually their Babylonian names. Don't ask me their Hebrew names. But Justin, I bet you know this. This is something you would know. Don't look at it. He's looking at it. All right, so I know that it's in Daniel. That's right. It's in Daniel. That's actually their Babylonian names. I had an Old Testament survey professor myself said, you better memorize their, their Hebrew names because when you get to heaven and you call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's their slave Babylonian names. They may not. I'm just kidding. He was... He was trying to joke there. Um, but this is them in the furnace, okay? Esther 2. Yeah, Esther 2. That's right. That's awesome. Uh, you should know that one. If you don't know uh, Esther's name, you don't go to Great Gables, okay? No, I'm kidding. Um, so <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar set up a gold image of himself uh, that all in his kingdom must fall down and worship. And this, of course, is an attempt to exert his sovereignty and promote his claim to deity. This most likely occurred before the events of chapter 4. But like proper monotheists who still love their covenant god, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will not bow down and worship that image. In fact, somebody read chapter 3, verses 12 through 15 for me. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at this moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, dragon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hand? Ooh, that last sentence there is key, ain't it? Woo! All right. Y'all ready to get fired up? Uh, I'm sorry. For the pun. All right. That's a dad joke. Uh, all right. Nebuchadnezzar is just straight up throwing down the gauntlet here, isn't he? That's it. That's challenging anything or anyone to show himself more powerful than he. What God can rescue you from me? We're back at that same question, right? Who's in charge here? Well, in response to that, we see that these three men are as brave as Daniel. And, oh, love this text. Chapter 3, verse 16, I'm going to read it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Woo! You else get chills? 
What a response. Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer to you. We don't. We only answer to the God we serve. You'll see, and if not, this wasn't name it, claim it theology, by the way. If not, we still don't fear you, and you need to know that. Upon this answer, they're indeed thrown into the fire. The fire was so hot that it even consumed the guards who escorted them to the edge of the furnace. But they say to themselves, but they themselves, I'm sorry, were not harmed at all. Their God, whom they serve, indeed saved them and answered the question of verse 15 pretty emphatically. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? The God of the Jews. That's who. Nebuchadnezzar is astonished, and then he declares this in verse 29. Someone read verse 29 for me. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation or tongue, that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Oh, no other God able to deliver in this way. No God like this, he says. So, then we go to chapter 6. We know what chapter 6 is all about, right? Yeah, you have a question? We we'll skip verse 25. Did we skip verse 25? Yeah. Oh, you want to read it, Bob? Go ahead and read it. Yes, sir. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. That's right. Amen. The form of the fourth. There's only three men in there, right? Who is that? Who is that fourth Son of God, I wonder? Interesting. We'll get there. Don't spoil it. All right, so go. Um, we know what chapter 6 is like, right? What's in chapter 6? The lion's den, right? Daniel and the lion's den. This kind of time, it's King Darius. Um, by the way, Darius may not be his name. It may actually be a title like Caesar. It's important for Cyrus, king of the Medes, um, just so you know. Um, uh, and, and the faithful Jewish victim is Daniel. Story of him in the lion's den. By now, Daniel's an old man. He has a lot of enemies, as many enemies as he does friends. And then we look at chapter 6, verse 5. Someone read chapter 6, 5 for me. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this game unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Oh, don't you wish somebody could say that about you, huh? Uh, not you personally, Brock. Um, but maybe, I don't know. Uh, but <laughs> no, all of us. Don't you wish somebody would say that about you? We will not find any complaint in this person unless we attack him and his, his faith in the Lord. Woof. All right. Interesting, isn't it? Daniel was thought of even by those jealous of him, that he's blameless and faithful to his God. So they're going to try to use his piety to trap him. It's not uncommon for the enemies of God to use godly characteristics as weapons against his people. Look for that, by the way, and you'll see it in society Every single day. Anyway, here's their sinister plan. It starts in verse 7. Their sinister plan is... I think I've missed one. There it is. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and the satraps, the counselors and adversaries, sorry, advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions... Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. And, of course, it worked. What does verse 10 say, somebody? Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Subsequently, the plotters were looking out for Daniel to do something so treasonous as to pray to the true God. And he, they caught him in his criminal act. But Darius liked Daniel. In fact, we read this in verses 14 and 15. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king established may be changed. Then in verse 16, we have the same emphasis that we had in 15, only attended to with different words. Darius is hopeful. And after a night, we read this in verses 20 through 23. Who wants it? Don't fight over it. 
23. 20 to 23, Dave. 20. <clears throat> and when he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out uh, with a troubled voice. The king spoke, said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you uh, constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? And Daniel spoke to the king, O king, uh, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me in, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. All right. Um, amazing. Um, oh, sorry. Read verse 23 for me, too, if you will. 23? Yeah. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatsoever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. All right. So the scheming men, however, who crafted this deception, what happened to them? They got thrown in. Yeah. Their own wickedness revisited upon their own heads. They were cast in alignment, lions in a similar pronouncement to what we saw in chapter 3. Remember, parallel to chapter 6, similar announcement is made in chapter 6 verses 26 through 27 where he says I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel for he's a living God and steadfast forever his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end he delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions the point in all of this again is to emphasize it just because the true God reigns does not mean that his people will be exempt from persecution. In fact, it means they'll be the target of all the more persecution. Right? For those who would want to amass power unto themselves and establish themselves as the head of the universe will only see the people of the true God as getting in their way. Their faithfulness to the Lord will appear to be and actually will indeed be a challenge to any earthly claim to absolute allegiance. In other words, Christians are first and foremost citizens of heaven before they are citizens of any earthly kingdom. This will make people unhappy. But it's because of that confidence that indeed the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men that the persecuted and afflicted people of God are willing to endure great trials and tribulations for the sake of the truth about the God they love. Now, we may be untouched by this in our country, although that's debated, um, but we have many brothers and sisters throughout history and around the globe today who have declared their allegiance to the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, and who have suffered greatly for it at the hands of the enemies of God. We need to know their plight, confess our solidarity with them, pray for them, and help in any way the Lord calls and gives us to all right, so we started with 4 and 5. Build back again to 3 and 6, which means now we go to chapter 2 and 7 and 8. Coming back. We return again now to some dreams and visions. We're going to say that, see here that Daniel make a predicted prophecy about the future. In chapter 2, that guy Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. This time he sees his dream a large statue, the meaning of which only Daniel can interpret. The statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw had a head made of gold, chest and arms made of silver, belly and thighs made of bronze, and feet of iron and clay mix. Then he says this in his dream. Someone read chapter 2, verses 34 through 35 for me. Thirty-four and thirty-five. Yes, Charles. You watched while stone was cut out with hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. All right, so Daniel then goes on to explain the meaning of the dream. According to that, what God had told him. He says in the following verses that each section of the statue represents four successive kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom is the golden head, but the Babylonians will be succeeded by three other kingdoms. 
the last of which will be as strong as iron, yet at the same time as fragile as clay, because it will be divided between many kings. What about that rock that smashed the statue and itself grew into a mountain? Well, I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. All right. Let's play dream interpreter here, right? What's the interpretation of the interpretation? Even Daniel's interpretation is a little cloudy because it pertains to future things to him and his contemporaries. But for us, who are a little further along in history, we can look back, therefore, and see precisely what's going on. As we already said, the Babylonians were taken over by a future kingdom. That kingdom was Persian. the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire, 539 BC. That empire would be the silver chest and arms. Then around 332 BC, the kingdom of Persia was conquered by Alexander the, Great. Alexander the Great of Greece. The Grecian Empire is represented by the legs of bronze. Then that gave way to the feet of iron and clay, which is the Roman, Roman Empire. Y'all have these internets? Y'all are just smart like that. And over a period of the second and first centuries BC. But what we're most interested in is the rock cut out without hands. That, of course, is the kingdom of heaven or God. Yeah, absolutely. It's all that's all that's all the answer. You got it. Um, and its ruler is the Lord Jesus Christ. However, his conquest did not come through military might, but through the preaching of the gospel did he conquer hearts and minds of the people of the Roman Empire. Just as we read with the mountain filling the whole earth in verse 35, Christ's kingdom has spread throughout the entire world as we read in verse 44. It is forever. So what Daniel sees here is the victory of the preaching of Christ and the spread of his church to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Amen. By the way, as a side note, that's kind of awesome, right? Like, you understand that? Is that not a powerful affirmation that this is, in fact, God's word? That it is divinely inspired? Who else but God Almighty can see hundreds of years into the future like this? Pretty awesome. I think so. You think so? Yeah. All right. You knew that was the right answer. All right. Now, with that, we jump ahead to chapter 7. What time is it? What we see there is that these kingdoms are typological in history to teach us something. Not only of the religious kingdom of the universal church, but also Christ's complete and total worldwide rule when he comes to earth a second time. Turn to chapter 7. Chapter 7 here. Daniel has a dream of four beasts. The first resembles a lion with eagle's wings. The second, a bear devouring bones. The third, a leopard with four wings and four heads. And the fourth is so terrible that there's nothing to compare it to. Anybody an artist in here? We need to have Taylor draw something like that. That'd be pretty awesome. Um, I'll hang in my office if she does. Uh, Daniel only says that it had great iron teeth and many horns with eyes and a mouth to speak pompous words. On second thought, that might scare the children. Um, and was destroying everything in its path. And then Daniel has a vision of God whom he calls the Ancient of Days. Let's see what happens. Somebody read Daniel 7 verse 9 for me. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, and his wheels were a burning fire. All right, so God destroys these beasts who takes the power and dominion that was once theirs. Look at verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Ooh, who is one like the Son of Man? And asked about his identity, who he was. Um, think about this. Um, when Jesus was on trial... He was asked who he was in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 62, which tells us, but he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Get this. Jesus said, I am. 
And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying that he has divine prerogative to approach the living and true God and to reign with him and that he will return to earth on the clouds of heaven in due time to publicly take what is rightfully his. And we know by faith that he currently reigns and soon everyone's going to see it. This will result in the vindication of all his people who've been mistreated by the kingdoms of this world. We see that in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 7. Someone read that one for me. Y'all are quick tonight. Thank you, Phil. That was 17 and 18, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, all right, so... Now, another reason why I believe this refers to Christ's second coming, whereas chapter 2 refers to his first coming, is because John picks up on this language of a ferocious beast persecuting God's people and Christ coming to vindicate them in the book of Revelation in chapters 13, 14, and 17. There, that one beast resembles a combination of all four beasts in Daniel. It represents all and any government throughout this church age who would persecute Christ's people. In heaven, these persecuted saints currently rule with Christ, according to Revelation 24. It said, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and have not received his mark on their foreheads or on their heads, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Thus, those who have died for their testimony reign with Christ now, even as he himself reigns. When he returns, both his and their authority will be made permanently public. Revelation 22.5 says, There shall be no night there. They need no lamp, nor light, nor sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I'm going to leave you just to study chapter 8 on your own, because we got one more to go. Chapter 1 and chapter 9, the book ends, and we'll look at chapters 10 and 12 pretty quickly. we got time. All right, we're going to make it. You ready? Let me try that again. You ready? Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> We've made, we finally made it chapter 1, and we'll look at it together with its companion chapter 9. It's in these chapters that we especially focus on the exile. In chapter 1, the people of God go into exile. In chapter 9, the people of God are ready to come out of exile. In chapter 1, we see all four of the Jewish boys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, placed in a Babylonian prep school of sorts. They're put there because they've shown potential and someday serving the kingdom. And, well, while they're there, they bravely ask that they might be exempt from eating the foods outside of their religious dietary laws. The result of it is what we see in chapter 1, verse 15. Someone read that for me. At the end of ten days, your parents seem better and they look better than all the other all the Jews who have been eating the king's choice food. All right. The point of the story is to launch a doctrine that Daniel will drive home again and again through this book. We also read it in verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Another, another sub-major theme in this book is wisdom. You'll notice it in just about every chapter. Wherever, you, whatever you do, or wherever you go, excuse me, you see that it too falls under God's sovereign rule. He gives it to whomever He pleases, and anyone who has it has only God and not themselves to thank for. When they have it by God's grace, they are able to withstand sometimes subtle and sometimes powerful temptations to conform to the surrounding culture, which is why every single day in your prayer life, pray. For wisdom. Pray, pray, pray for wisdom. Alright, that's chapter 1. Now let's go to chapter 9 um, and look at the wonderfully encouraging verse in verse 2 that says this. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, by the what? The number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet. So what book? Jeremiah. Jeremiah that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. 
How did Daniel know the exile was almost over? What a novel concept, right? For encouragement and understanding, David reads the Bible. You'll remember from the book of Jeremiah that no one... What was Jeremiah's issue with the people? What were they not doing? They were not listening to him. Well, Daniel did, right? Daniel believed him, and that prayer that follows, beginning in verse 3, is this elegant, vigorous, moving, and overwhelming prayer. You can tell from reading it that Daniel truly knows his God, and we're all challenged to adopt the kind of language he uses in our own prayer lives. I encourage you, just read the Daniel 9 prayer this week, and you will be encouraged. Meditate on it. Like I said... Uh, before it's particularly exciting in the context of Daniel because how does Daniel refer to God in chapter 9? What name does he use? Yahweh. Yahweh. Our God. The end of the exile is dawning. But the real exile, the exile that began when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, the separation from God that we all experience because of our sins, will not end simply with the Jews' return to Jerusalem. That exile... The exile that the Jewish exile is only a picture of ends when Christ makes atonement for our sin. Look at verses 25 through 27 that says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, the street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Read those verses again and slower and carefully later. And you'll see that what we have here is a prophecy about rebuilding uh, Jerusalem. Then the coming of Christ, and then his death on behalf of sinners. Last three chapters in 10 through 12 don't sit in that mirroring structure within the first nine chapters, but they're just as important. They actually contain more predictive prophecies about the future of the people of God, both in the more immediate future and as well in the last days. Uh, and that uh, continual thesis of God's sovereignty over history and the persecution and subsequent vindication of his people are still present there as well. I'll leave you to study those chapters uh, and those themes. Okay. So, we say goodbye to the major prophets. Bye to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, which comprise a very large part of the Old Testament. And they give us a lot with which to understand God, the history of the plan of redemption, and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope your future studies of these books will be enriched because of your time in this class. Now we have time for questions, thoughts, comments, no insults, but save those for later. Any other? I just love how we see Daniel as the sister book to Revelation. And both, but the reason we always think of that as the sister book is because of the prophecy. But and looking, looking at it through the study... It, it's clear that it's also the themes of the book that make it the sister book mm. to Revelation. Yeah. Because what's, what are the themes of Revelation? It's that God is the Most High, and He will reign despite the, the circumstances of the, the crumbling world around us. Right. And that we are we are secure because God is, is our God. He's our salvation. Sure. It's the same thing here in, in Daniel. Yeah. So it's just that's really cool to see the exact same themes. That's a good word. Yeah, our Sunday school class just recently got done with an overview on Revelation, and uh, I was thinking of that quite a bit. So that's that's a good word. Yeah. Anybody else? Seems like bad things happen to kings who walk on the roofs of their houses. <laughs> yeah. It's very true. Um, again, because kings should be going out leading and fighting with their people, right? Um, and I'm so thankful we have a king that doesn't sit idly by, but that mm. is active leading us in, drawing us out to bring us in. So, you're right. I found it interesting that the book is written in two languages, mm. and, it, and it goes from Hebrew to Aramaic yeah. back to Hebrew. Mm. Are, are there other books? I don't recall nope. that. This is the only one in the Old Testament that stands alone. I think there may be some Maybe some phrases somewhere, 
Um, but I think there's I some he, there's some Hebraisms in in Matthew. Yeah, right, but I think most of this this is the book in the Old Testament that has. This is why we say the old the Bible is written in Hebrew, Greek, and a little Aramaic because that little Aramaic Here, is in Hebrew. Here's the little. Yeah. So it is intriguing. I maybe look into that and start off that that off next week. Wonder why? I'm sure that there's some poetic problems. Any other question? Could be that, yeah. Very true. What I like about it, it reinforces no matter what you, whether you follow me or don't follow me, God is God. That's right. He is the Most High, and He will have no rivals. That includes the ones that we hold in our heart, right? He'll be as faithful to bring those low as He is the external King of the battle. All right, if you have anything else, any other questions, as always, we're here all night. We enjoy that. Um, and so next week, we're actually going to tackle Hosea and Joel. Um, the goal is to do Hosea and Joel, Amos and Obadiah, Nahum, Aba- uh, Nahum, sorry, no, you're doing Jonah, Micah, Jonah, I'm doing Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Zephaniah, you're doing Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So, five more weeks, in other words, all right? Five more weeks of 12 minor prophet books. Uh, do your best to read those in overview. Short. They're really short, but we're going to uh, pocket them again, okay? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much uh, that you are indeed the most high. Uh, Father, would you bring about us a greater faithfulness? Lord, we're thankful for the ways Daniel um, and his friends uh, mirror and picture Christ and their... Um, and their faithfulness to you, and Lord, even in the midst of persecution, would we be as bold? And Lord, would we see the true pleasure in serving you above all else, um, and the great joy there is in trusting and resting you? Uh, Lord, that we just would, would really live you being the most high as the most central and important theme of our life. We would declare it, we would live in such ways that our lives reflect it, and the lost and dying world would see it and be stirred towards praising you. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for these people. I pray your blessings upon them as they seek to use this information, not so they be puffed up and learn more, but they can teach others what it looks like to read the Bible in Christ the center. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you.